You are listening to WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio. And up right now, it is Kiefer Dunn with Buildings on Air. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on Lumpen Radio. Hello, hello, and welcome to this March episode of Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about architecture, frequently politics. We've got extra helpings of the politics today. Um, We will first be chatting with uh, Architectural Workers, which is a UK-based labor uh, rights coalition for architects, um, followed with an interview uh, from a member of the Radical Architects faction. Um, Both of these organizations have been involved with uh, strikes in the UK uh, uh, that, that pertain to academia, architecture, um, etc. So we'll be um, chatting with those folks. It's really exciting stuff. Uh, Stay tuned for that. Then we'll be uh, answering your questions, your listener questions about uh, buildings with regular mailbag correspondents and Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm. And then in the next hour, we'll be airing uh, clips from the Chicago Democratic Socialists of America podcast, Talking Socialism. It's a great show um, and it will feature yours truly. Um, So that's that's the outlook for today. and uh, we'll jump right into it. Uh, we'll start with this with this statement from architectural workers. So I, I this is this is pre-recorded. Uh, they 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 send it to me last night, and um, you'll notice that um, the voices have been anonymized, um, and that's because architectural workers is a is a collective and it's an anonymous collective. So I sent them a list of questions, um, and they have read the questions, <laughs> uh, um, and so it, it'll all become apparent in due time. Um, but enjoy the statement from from architectural workers talking about what exciting stuff is going down in the UK right now. So who are or what is architectural workers? Architectural workers are an anonymous independent network of people who work in and around the architectural industry. We campaign against the negative effects of architectural work on physical bodies and mental health as well as the wider social and physical environment. So what's the kind of strike that's been happening now? What are the issues? What are the demands? What organisations are involved? What's the history of that? So currently there's a 14-day strike that began on uh, February 22nd, 2018. The strike action was called for by the University and College Union, UCU, against the proposed 40% cuts to the USS pension scheme. 61 campuses are taking part in the largest industrial action in the history of UK higher education. Amongst those going on strike, academics, lecturers, trainers, instructors, researchers, managers, administrators, computer staff, librarians and postgraduates working in all forms of adult and higher education centres. Some of these workers are architectural workers. from the proposed pension cut, university workers and students are also campaigning against the increasing financialization of education. We can observe this across the out the whole the whole of the sector. The outsourcing of workers from support staff, cleaners and tutors, caterers and maintenance workers. Many of these people do not benefit from the USS pension or its equivalents and instead are typically put on the minimum possible defined contribution pensions with a 1% contribution from the employer. They have been fighting for the same status as in-house university staff for years and now one of the things that they have been fighting for to achieve might be taken away from all. 
the financialization of the academy has been a long-term project, but this reached a t- climactic moment in 2011 when the government legislated to remove university subsidies, passing the cost on to the consumer, the student. This meant that tuition fees went from £3,000 to £9,000 overnight. Alongside wider cuts to tuition budgets and higher education funding, there are also cuts to postgraduate art grants, which will be totally scrapped in 2019, meaning that universities are having to be increasingly commercial. Work in education is part of the architecture industry, whether the worker is a lecturer, a member of administrative staff, teaching assistant, technician or student. Education forms a key part of the training to become an architect and is the site of violence in itself. There's also an intersection of roles for many workers. Many practising architects might spend some of their time working in the academy, balancing it with the office. Such part-time contracts can be precarious, such as the zero-hours visiting lecturer contracts, which affords pay, but none of the long-term protections and benefits of of a wage salary. In the past week, we've seen architectural students standing in firm solidarity with striking workers. They recognise the shared precarity between students and tutors and that the threat to pensions is part of the same series of reactionary gender that has seen tuition fees treble, education maintenance allowance cut and tuition budgets slashed. Across the country, we've seen sit-ins, occupations and protests in solidarity with the demands of the UCU, as well as an increase in student awareness of what industrial action feels like and can achieve. Architectural workers within the university include academics, but we also extend that definition to all those who engage in work that supports architectural industry in any way, be they the cleaner of the studio, security guard of the campus or an outsourced technician. Many of these workers are not covered by the USS pension, but cuts to the rights of the in-house workers in the university is bad news for those outsourced. We are most excited when allegiances are being made across and between the intersecting categories of student, tutor, academic and worker. We believe this demonstrates the commonality of our struggles, our strength and unity, and we're looking forward to broadening this fight. For example, the Rebel Architects faction staged occupation of the architectural faculty at Cambridge University in solidarity with the striking staff on February 22, 2018. Such actions form a highly visible stand against all that the proposed pensions cuts represent. How do you think the strike will feed into other actions and feed into the general organisation or the the unionisation of architects i guess this is discussed quite a lot on the show um but in your view why do you think there's a necessity or a need for an architect's union so a common argument is that those who work in the architectural sector are professional and therefore would not be prepared to strike or are not in need of industrial action in the first place On the contrary, the multitude of strikes, teach-outs, occupations and protests around the USS pension cuts proves that collective action is both necessary and possible. Perhaps the only difference between architectural workers in the university and in the office in the UK context is that 48% of people employed in education are unionised, whereas reasonable estimates put those in architectural practice at less than 5%. University and office workers can be on precarious contracts, facing the same pressures of unaffordable rent and living costs. So a union can help in many ways. We need a union of architectural workers for much of the same reasons that unions of education workers are needed. From a distance, there seems like there's a groundswell of support around the 
radically rethinking architecture as work and connecting it with some like sort of serious activism but can you just give some context and what has happened in the sort of uh, British political history um, what are the ground actions and the uh, precipitated struggle we'd like to shout out to other workers movements happening right now in the UK we draw inspiration from the new unions like IWGB and United Voices of the World they're working proof that unions work they also demonstrate that unions don't have to repeat some of the problems of the unions of the 70s which did replicate existing structural hierarchies of race nationality gender sexuality and class more specifically, United Voices of the World are able to unionise workers who are disparate on precarious contracts and able to win results for everyone with very little union density. In UK politics, it's very tempting to read a massive challenge to the repeated statement of business as usual droned throughout the Blair years. This challenge is presented not just by Corbyn and Momentum, but also things like the Brexit vote. Increasingly, there's a sense that there is an alternative, that doing things that seem radical or left-wing are popular, sustainable and realisable, even in spaces dominated in recent years by the centre and the right. We've been supported by other activist groups who organise around housing, gentrification, planning and the built environment, made up of workers, academics and residents. We work closely with, the con- with Concrete Action, a group which seeks to empower residents in the opaque and imbalanced planning process, helping people fight regeneration plans earlier and more effectively. We've also been supported by Architects for Social Housing, a vocal and active group who resist a state de- demolition by subverting the viability statement to support proposals in the residents favour. They work with residents vowing never to demolish but to instead inflow and to extend creating new homes for everyone. So how does the fight for a union of architectural workers link and overlap with other struggles? We believe that forming a union of architectural workers is a vital part of establishing worker control of the industry. Why do we work, want worker control? because we want to be able to direct the nature of the work that we do. We refuse to be exploited to exploit others. However, a union is only one part of the strategy to change both the way that we work and what we work for. We want to shift the way that architects and all those involved in the profession talk and think about their employment. We want to make visible the exploitation that takes place in how we work and what we produce so that we can challenge it. The tropes are very well known, little pay, little sleep and little dignity. So why do architects resist organisation? Even when bracketed as professionals, creatives or even civil servants, we're the outliers. Part of of starting the process of organising means saying architectural practices work and that the architects are workers. Outside of unionising, we're searching for all sorts of ways in which we can increase the agency of all those exploited by the building industry. We want to input empower architectural workers to be able to negotiate fairer pay, better working conditions and ethical work and we want to also empower residents to be able to resist regeneration and gentrification. Of our members we're often reminded that we share multiple struggles whether in the workplace or as as renters. The irony isn't lost on us that we've been employed to raise the rents of the places that we ourselves live in. We also fight for better representation of the structurally disempowered at every corner of the profession, but we say that visibility without power is tokenism. Ultimately, we see our project as one of dismantling the industry, not one of incremental reformation, but radical transformation and repurposing. So what are the plans for architectural workers moving forward? 
We're gathering a database of workers' experiences to survey and expose the conditions in which we work. This is based on interviews, and we see the interview process, one where you discuss the, your own experiences with others in a way that archives the mundane and cumulatively performing a structural critique of the industry is really important to everything else that we do. Much of what what galvanised us as individuals weren't just the experiences we suffered at work or our horror at playing an instrumental role in a regeneration project, but having the space and network to talk about these experiences, join them together and collectively propose action. From this database of interview and of interviews and surveys, we continue to illustrate the reality of our day-to-day working lives, working with film and posters to distribute statistics and qualitative evidence. This helps us reach a wider audience beyond our weekly meetings. As we grow, we hope to be able to set up chapters of architectural workers in many places. Our peer-to-peer research also underpins our campaigns, currently against the widespread practice of unpaid overtime, and we're fighting for the London living wage for all workers. We're also currently working with our Allies Concrete Action to help research and archive the history of organising and activism of architectural workers in the UK since the 1970s. This material will be publicly accessible at the Mayday Rooms archive. The interviews, surveys and historical research form a strong basis for us to be able to call for the need for a union into what a union could actually do and hopefully be able to make one that successful. All right, that was a statement from architectural workers in the UK, architectural workers who are participating in a strike action. Um, And, you know, one of the things, I always say this, one of the things that you miss if you listen to the podcast version of this show instead of the live radio version is the excellent, uh, excellent music choices by producer Jamie. They're always topical. um, And you just missed, if you're listening to the podcast version in several days, uh, Walk the Line by Johnny Cash. And uh, it's a very appropriate song because we're uh, on the horn with Luther Blassett, um, who is on the picket line um, in the UK, beaming in from across the pond. Luther, how's it going? Yeah, very well, thank you. Good afternoon to all your listeners out there in the States. Thanks, yeah, and uh, thanks for for joining the show. Uh, this was uh, quite a feat of co- <laughs> of coordination, and I'm glad we were able to make it work. Um, so, yeah, we heard that statement from architectural workers about the kind of general contours of what's happening. Um, but, yeah, like, if, if you could summarize it as well, what's going on? What are the latest updates? What's the feeling on the ground? Well, uh, England's very much in a state of flux at the moment, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, especially with Brexit. Um, Across the board, we're seeing attacks on pay and working conditions. Uh, And generally, you know, following the reign of Margaret Thatcher, we've faced 40 uh, 40 years of attacks on living standards, rising rents, um, declining standards of living. Uh, And frankly, people have had enough, which is why you're seeing this sort of groundswell of unionisation activity Um, within the universities where I'm currently based. I'm currently at the University of Cambridge. uh, There are over 61 universities participating in the biggest strike in the history of British higher education. And this is because the university managers, they've got together and they're trying to cut the pensions of uh, university workers by up to 40 percent. And obviously that's precipitated a very strong reaction uh, up and down the country. 
Yeah. So, um, and and I, I'm thinking too of the uh, the uh, West Virginia teachers who are on on strike here in the states, um, um, an illegal strike. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's kind of amazing what's what's happening in the world right now, um, and the kind of strike the strike is making a comeback, which is um, at least from my vantage point, really good to see. Um, and so, uh, explain what's going on. Is so so the 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 teachers, the faculty are on strike, and um, it seems like architecture students are. Um, kind of fully supporting sympathy strikes. Um, is, that, is that right? Yeah, so at the University of Cambridge, architecture students have been particularly strong uh, in supporting strikes. There's been a general consensus not to cross picket lines, to stay out of uh, school, uh, and support the strike as, in as many ways as possible, really, through publicity, through banner drops, and also through a program of direct action. And I think really students are starting to realise that precarity in education is just giving way to precarity in employment. So for architects who are often on zero-hour contracts, who are often working lots of unpaid overtime, who are often you know, quite ruthlessly exploited, we're now going to education systems where we're paying £9,000 a year. So we're paying to learn how to work and really in jobs that no longer pay. So we're increasingly drawing the links between workplace conditions in the university where they say to our, to our lecturers that their pensions should be cut that they too should have precarious contracts, that they too should have poverty wages, and realising that this is the future that's in store for us. And frankly, it's a future that we don't want, which is why I think you're seeing this increasingly strong response from students around the country to say that actually we're going to stand up and fight for our rights here because we've seen what happens when we don't. And that's been the last 40 years in Britain, which is really starting to reach a boiling point. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious because uh, how, how this was kind of organized, especially the support from architectural students, because I, I think um, um, everyone, everyone kind of feel, feels in the air that there's, there's, a, there's just a lot less to, to lose. Um, so I'm wondering, was it something that uh, there were kind of existing activist networks that were kind of um, activated or had experience organizing something like this? Um, is it that uh, it was a kind of spontaneous um, um, upheaval in, in a heated moment. Um, um, how did this come about? Um, and, you know, I understand that there's maybe some, some sensitivities about talking about what is an active picket line, um, but as, as much as you can say that will help uh, uh, folks here um, be able to conceptualize and realize their own kind of agency in, in doing something similar. Well, I think um, <clears throat> it's a little bit of everything, uh, but predominantly spontaneity. Uh, so, in, as your listeners may be aware, in 2010, they trebled the tuition fees from £3,000 to £9,000. Um, and there were huge riots in the United Kingdom, really huge riots. And many universities were occupied. Um, there were very heated battles between police and student protesters um, in which, you know, there's the horrific acts of police violence that students very bravely fought their way through. Um, there's a real legacy from that, which has been that there's been over eight years of organisation on campuses. There's been programmes of rent strikes, which have taken millions of pounds in compensation from universities. There's been forceful anti-police movements, um, such as the Cops Off Campus mobilisation in 2013. There's been very forceful anti-privatisation um, movements and also increasing unionisation activity around things yeah. such as the Senate House Cleaners Struggle, the SOAS Cleaners Struggle, the LSE. These are all um, universities where there's been very big drives by unions to organise sort of cleaners and outsource work with very successful results. Yeah. So there is this legacy and sort of memory um, amongst people uh, of this sort of organization. And there are some people around who uh, participated in that and so remember very well. 
uh, within the wider university as a whole, there are, of course, um, activists and organization groups. But within our Faculty of Architecture at Cambridge, the um, it's been far more spontaneous. So whilst there's people there with this experience, I think there's, there's several things coming together. There's a sense of a, a collective investment in what happens from the strike because we see that the future for our lectures is also our future for ourselves and that the changes being pushed through here will negatively impact us. Um, I think it's also the sense of growing precarity and employment um, and the need to really take a stand on that. And um, the sort of intersection really between that spontaneity and, you know, the classic bread and butter organising tactics of faculty assemblies, uh, door knocking, leafleting, poster campaigns, you know, the very, very basic building blocks that start to bring disparate people together and start talking about really what are collective problems. Yeah, it's really inspiring to hear because I, I think that there are, there are some uh, analogs here in the States. You know, I think about um, the, the immense wave of graduate student organizing that's happening through United Auto Workers. And, you know, uh, in, in the architecture lobby, um, a, a lot of our most experienced and best organizers are able to bring that, that experience over from the kind of campus organizing as graduate students into um, other struggles. Um, but but it's really it's really inspiring to hear that all, all of this kind of stuff, uh, this activism, student activism, kind of gives way to um, uh, experiences that when when the need for spontaneity presents itself, people are well equipped to uh, to do that. Um, so you mentioned. Um, you mentioned that there's kind of uh, acts of publicity. Um, I, I saw a big red picket fence on, on mm -hmm. Instagram or something. <laughs> um, and so, so has has there been like a proper picket lines? Uh, I know from from my experience, you know, walking a picket line is is kind of um, a defining moment um, um, as a kind of activist. Uh, it really cements cements your position. <laughs> so I imagine if if there is a picket line, that it's had a, a, a very radicalizing effect. Is that right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's pretty strong picket lines all around the university, um, and of course, many, many uh, workers are all manning them and imploring students not to cross picket lines. Um, some students choose to cross them, and we have a word for them: it's scabs. Um, <laughs> but others uh, have been far more solid, and architecture has been particularly good in not crossing picket lines. And uh, we thought that, given central management at the university are sort of so responsible for this dispute, Cambridge plays a very unique role in this dispute, having lobbied for the changes uh, purely for its own financial benefit, which are the cause of the strikes. Uh, we thought we'd take the message a little stronger to Senate House by building a sort of four metre by four metre high picket fence, um, which, you know, has this great sort of history as a sort of symbol of capitalist property relations, you know, the white picket <laughs> sure. fence, I'm sure is familiar to many of you in the States. And we thought, what better thing to do than to scale it up? You know, if they're putting up the barriers to our education, we will scale up the pickets, as we said. So we, um, we built a giant picket fence and chained it to their central access gates uh, very early in the morning. Um, and then posed for some photos and ran away. <laughs> and and turned it red, of course. Which, uh, I, I turned it red, of course. <laughs> Naturally. And so, yeah. Uh, so, what what is what are the next steps? Uh, sort of what what are what are the, I think um, you've painted a, a, a nice picture of the kind of the kind of broad demands that are driving um, um, people's act activity and, and will to join the picket. Um, but what's what's kind of next in this specific struggle? Well, it's, it's an interesting one because obviously within, within universities, people have deadlines and the pressure is really starting to mount after two weeks of strikes. So um, whether the momentum can be sustained for another two weeks is um, is going to be interesting, though certainly this 
week there's negotiations happening between the union and management so we'll see what the outcomes of of those will be but i think the real legacy will be far more long term you know dozens and dozens of people that have never before participated in more militant or radical action have now got an experience of that uh, and they're almost certainly going to be looking at things like the architectural workers union as, as they move into employment so i think that alone i think will be a very interesting development uh, perhaps more immediately on march the 8th is the uh, global women's strike which is taking place in dozens and dozens of countries um, in britain there's an increasingly large mobilization happening where you've got workers from places like the iwgb the picture house strikes um, many precarious workers many workers in fast food industries all identifying with the aims of the women's strike which is against um, gender inequality and the many forms it uh, manifests itself and i think that's going to be a fairly interesting moment for um, uk labor disputes as we start moving away from Labour disputes purely is centred around the workplace and into a far more sort of conception of the social strike where we, we can withdraw our labour to have leverage over issues in society far greater than simple workplace struggles. And I think this is a very interesting moment um, for unionisation activity in Britain on that basis because it's, uh, you know, the trade union bug is in the air and it's certainly uh, certainly not going away anytime soon, I think. Yeah, and it's, it's also, it strikes me um, um, that, you know, here... Um, you know, I, I kind of mentioned West, the West Virginia teachers that are on strike, and, and that's it's an illegal strike uh, under their contract under the state law. Um, and but you know, part part of the reason why sort of similar strike actions and uh, don't happen here, and and just the, the the general conservatism of the country is because labor unions haven't fought back in this kind of militant way. So I'm I'm wondering, um, like, is there that same history in the UK that's kind of been um, over? overturned or overcome in this instance or is it the case that um, uh, unions have been kind of I don't know more willing to go out on a limb um, for for kind of genuine uh, working class uh, people focused policies um, and, and that and that like has created a good base to kind of leap from um, well first off we've we've certainly been watching the West teacher strike it's um it's truly inspiring and i know that everyone in the faculty sends their full solidarity to all those striking teachers out there um in answer to your question around union activity yes uh in this country margaret thatcher decimated the unions mm. um really really hobbled them uh and the decline of trade union power is directly correlate with the decline in living standards collapsing wages you know britain has the worst wage growth of any developed country following the 2008 crisis um our wages now growing less than greece and obviously greece is in a very different economic situation to uh, Britain, but in Britain at the same time, the wealthy keep getting wealthier uh, and power is becoming more and more concentrated in the hands of a few. Um, trade union activity has generally been pretty Spartan or non-existent. Um, we've not really had mass strikes for quite some time that have had any realistic prospects of winning uh, or even been attempted in such a way as they could conceivably win. Uh, just to take the example of the UCU, which is the um, which is the union behind the lecture strike at the moment. For the last eight years, they've been, you know, very, very weak uh, in opposing the changes to the university sector, which has completely transformed education in this country from a universal social good to a market commodity. Um, and it's trebled fees, worsened conditions for everyone. At best, they've had one or two day symbolic strikes. Um, and no one turns out for a one or two day symbolic strike. Sure. Because the point of a strike isn't a symbol, it's an act of power. 
and people aren't idiots they won't back things that they know are going to lose and um what's very different about this strike is it's 14 days immediately across a month but it's it's very likely to be extended if they don't win you know this is a strike that's being fought to win which is why it's getting um a lot more militant a lot more support behind it um, but also, you know, if you call strikes, people join unions and thousands and thousands of people have joined the UCU um, in the last few weeks alone as a consequence of the strike. So I think the lesson in it is that if you mobilize campaigns that you intend to win uh, and don't be afraid to do that in a militant way, because that's ultimately what's required to win, um, then you will find that popular support comes behind you. And for the wider sort of unionization efforts, it was touched upon in the Architectural Workers Union statement, but the um a lot of the main trade unions are so big um, and very bureaucratic that they've not really taken effective action in, in a very long time and a con- as a consequence there's lots of these sort of base unions i alluded to them before the iwgb for example who are um a lot more sort of reflexive and able to unionize workers that have previously been ununionizable uh, in a sense because they're on such precarious contracts and such precarious working conditions and they've been leading very militant campaigns you know as i mentioned the cleaner struggles at the university of london um where they would just go straight for strike action and and everything necessary to win and the consequence is that they're now have gone from nothing five six years ago to having thousands of members um and frequently win improved paying conditions and so i think what people are starting to realize is that um you know conditions are now so bad in this country that people really do have very little to lose from joining unionization efforts and um and as soon as they push that in a militant direction they really are seeing results and i think that's something that's only growing um and probably is the sort of lesson for for many of us in architecture as well Fantastic. Well, Luther, we are out of time, but I can't thank you enough for uh, uh, joining this, joining the show. Um, it's it's really inspiring stuff to hear. And uh, be militant, fight to win, and you will win. Um, solidarity forever. And I, I look forward to seeing what happens when uh, all of these these folks uh, with hard organizing skills and um, uh, go out into the architectural workforce. We will win an architectural union. I have every confidence. Um, and thanks again. We'll be back in just yeah, a couple minutes. Thank you very much. With the mailbag. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. Um, and we're here with our favorite segment, our monthly segment, the mailbag, where we answer your listener questions about buildings. Uh, if you're listening live, you can tweet at the show at BLDGS on air with your questions, and we will do our best to answer them. Um, but yeah, Anne, Craig, how's it going? It's going great. Did you hear him just admit that we're his favorite segment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but you still admitted it. Yeah, on I'm, air, <laughs> everybody else can can be sad that you know we're I, the best segment. I just want to know, Craig, has Anne been insufferable since <laughs> she made her magazine cover debut? Com- completely. The entire there's an entire wall in our apartment dedicated to her. She, you know, she keeps collecting that's Jamie's them. fault. <laughs> when when I saw Anne out the other day, she came up to my co-worker and I and begged us oh, if we knew any if we knew any locations that had copies of this magazine which I will not name because one Anne Louis was going to be on the cover so the next morning I happened to find a group of these magazines and I thoughtfully brought them over not realizing that I probably looked like a homeless man taking these free newspapers to to our friend Anne to, to make sure that her ego was properly satisfied. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Well, as you guys all know, I'm really famous now in a very, very local way, you know, for the 10 
people I'm sorry. I'm sure I'm sure that publication has a really awesome readership and I'm very honored to be on the cover, but on the other hand, it's yes. the most embarrassing thing that's happened to me in years. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and Louis, designer of the moment. Is uh, that is that uh, right? Was yes. that the headline? The moment has passed, according to Craig. <laughs> according to Craig, the moment came and gone and and went and ended on Friday and now we're never allowed to talk about it again. <laughs> Uh, so embarrassing yeah well someone has to keep your ego in check yeah, thanks. that thanks. that burden has fallen to me <laughs> how horrible <laughs> nice, how nice many life. copies of it do you have in your bathroom <laughs> <laughs> i've actually taken the ones that you dropped off and i've arrayed them around the apartment so craig cannot escape them you know sure. like do you want a toasted bagel here's Anne on the cover of you know the magazine that's that's designing a moment all right <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah, well, there's uh, <laughs> nothing more, uh, nothing better to put our ego in check than uh, <laughs> random questions <laughs> about architecture um, that, that that we grapple with and answer uh, not so expertly, uh, but definitely expertly um, um, every month here. Um, so let's say you uh, let's let's get into it. Absolutely. All right. So um, I, I I've got some real winners this this month, <laughs> and I don't and I don't know where to start. I guess I'll start with the one that was my my personal favorite. Um, help! I set my smoke alarm off with vape. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hello, I was vaping in my room yesterday and the smoke alarm went off. My parents are out of town and will return in four days. My grandpa turned off the alarm and asked what happened, but I said, I don't know. He asked if I lit a candle and I said, no, the alarm company called and said the alarm went off in a bedroom. So that prevents me from making kitchen excuses. Any ideas? I was caught about two months prior as well. <laughs> but look, uh, your vape really shouldn't be setting off your smoke alarm, right? Yeah, what are you doing? You're blowing the smoke right at the smoke Yeah, like alarm? you're using your vape wrong. I, I guess there's a bunch of different kinds of smoke detectors. Mm. And and I yeah it, it shouldn't set off the normal kind, um, but there there's the there's the kind that has the like it's like an optical sensor that they yeah. but they usually only use that in like very like like server farms and, mm. and places mm. like this. Clearly though, if the kid's gotten caught once before, his parents probably upgraded the alarm <laughs> system with a weed detector. <laughs> There's, there's no mention of uh, if, if this was this was vape with uh, illicit substances. Oh, oh sorry. Yeah, um, yeah. I know all the teens are vaping these days. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that the smoke alarms at the co-prosperity sphere get sh- uh, set off by fog machines. Oh. And the fog juice that, that yeah. uh, certain people like to drink at this establishment. <laughs> <laughs> Well, baby dragons. I guess we need to become better uh, experts at how vaping works, but there's probably still some like carbon monoxide or something that yeah. we could have also set I, it off. Yeah, I th- I think that you just need like a you need like a wet towel or. I don't know, something. Why don't you I, just open a window, yeah. kid? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like we used to do, yeah. sit on the fire escape like everyone else. Uh, all right. Well, uh, hopefully that helps, uh, dear listener. Um, <laughs> we also have a question from uh, a regular mailbag question asker, Ryland Auburn, um, who is continuing the great illustrious mailbag tradition of questions about air conditioning. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, Haven't yeah. we answered them all? Uh, <laughs> you would think. There's no more questions I could be asked about <laughs> you would hope. <laughs> um, yeah, if you work for the air conditioning lobby, please uh, <laughs> underwrite Lump and Radio. Um, so anyway, true or false, air conditioning is a crutch used by lazy architects and engineers. Um, but Ryland, Ryland wants some very spe- has some very specific criteria for answer. I, it, whoa. <laughs> yes. Um, 
Your answer must not refer to short-sighted clients or stingy budgets or misaligned public expectations in regards to thermal comfort, um, which is exactly what I would have talked about. So. Wait, can you? Is this a question or a true/false statement we're supposed to refute? Oh no! It is. It is asking: Is do you think this is uh. true or false that air conditioning is a crutch used by lazy architects and engineers? I would say true, and I would direct him to the Michelle Addington text in Ecological Urbanism, oh. uh, which has, a, I think, a good summary of aligning energy qualities with energy uses yeah. uh, that so, I think would be a good starting yeah. point. Why would you say true? Because the, the kind of the way that mechanical systems have worked over the past 50 years is about like throwing a lot of energy at uh, – at something rather than, and that energy, okay, and I'm probably going to butcher yeah. this, but the that energy often comes in uh, kind of high quality sources from high quality sources, especially like electric. Uh -huh. Whereas like moving heat from one room to another, it doesn't require that kind of high quality electricity. So for instance, to use another example that I've been talking a lot uh, about in my studio is the, uh, the way we plug solar panels mm. into the grid. So solar panels produce very high quality electricity mm. that in in uh, direct current, which we then move to alternating current to distribute across the grid because alternating current is good for moving high quality electricity over large areas. Then when that electricity gets to your house, you reconvert it to uh, direct current before it goes into your laptop or your iPhone or like most of your electronics. And every time we move from alternating current to direct current, the um, we are losing some efficiencies. Mm -hmm. um, same thing with like using high quality electric that could be uh, charging your phone or your laptop to run a, a heating element or an air conditioner. Mm. So I think the... It is that kind of alignment um, yeah. that architects need to be reconsidering. Yeah, that makes sense. I also feel like it's maybe a thing about passive house. Something uh, like, uh, you know, if you are if you are able to pick a site and it's a relatively open site, you can you can use design strategies um, to kind of optimize cross breezes, and it depends on how you which windows you specify and all of those other things, but. You know, you can you can live without air conditioning if you if you consider all of those things thoughtfully. Yeah. yeah. Well, but that's more about like lazy users than lazy architects, right? Uh, how so? Because the like in order to utilize cross ventilation, you have to turn off your air conditioner and open your windows. And we I think we don't expect that clients or building users will do that. Ah, so you say this is this is this, <laughs> this is, is the one. lazy engineer, the lazy architect, uh, but you you are, you are talking about the lazy user. <laughs> well, what about what about just an I'm um, you know obviously not an architect. What about all these buildings that are built out of glass that are basically glass yeah. bricks that seem to just heat up and you know you're you're letting a lot of energy come into those buildings and with you know human beings also putting off energy and, and thermal units, mm. you're, you're setting it up for four months or five months a year to be a real cooker in there. And that necessitates air conditioning. But, I mean, I think, Kiefer, to a point you just made, you don't get to pick your site very often. No. And passive sources of heating and cooling, I, I can't speak to this, but I would assume that they're significantly more expensive than throwing a, you know, a 10-ton uh, displacement air conditioning unit on the back mm -hmm. of a moderate-sized building. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I, I guess I can't really speak to that, but it, it does seem that you know, drilling a, a heat pump and, and drilling a geothermal sink, that's also a significant financial outlay for a lot yeah. of clients. Well, and it also depends on the, the scale of the building. So, or Craig, you're going to say something? <laughs> Sorry, did I have that look on my face? <laughs> yeah. Um, the, again, this is not exactly about air conditioning, but a conversation I've been having with our mechanical engineer uh, a lot recently is that most of the um, – the systems that we put in typical construction in Chicago, like especially furnaces, oh. one of the smallest furnaces you can get in from, say, like Home Depot or a kind of common um, supplier is a 40,000 BTU furnace. And most Chicago residences don't need a 40,000 BTU furnace, mm. but they just physically don't make it any smaller. Mm. So there's, uh, I mean, I think that's another kind of uh lazy architect, lazy engineer, lazy manufacturer that we're kind of, we're making a one size fits all solution. Uh, And I'm sure this applies to air conditioners as well, that we stick into, um, into uh, places where they're oversized. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's move on from air conditioners. (laughs) (laughs) Never. The show can never move on from air conditioners. And, and uh, listeners may or may not know, uh, Anne and Craig, you, you both spent some time in Boston. Yes. Yes. So is I, that going to be relevant? Yes, it will be. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So here, here's a question. Uh, so, so uh, uh, friend of the show, Skylar Moran, uh, uh, tipped us to a conversation that was happening on Twitter. And the, the question was basically, what is the difference between a Chicago three flat and a Boston triple decker? Also, triple decker is way cooler than three flat. <laughs> I don't know. Do you is know? It? I've never uh, just a, th- a triple. I, I assume the tri- triple decker is just a cooler phrase. To be clear, <laughs> <laughs> my Chicago pride uh, will not let me say yeah. anything. The, so Anna and I yeah. lived in a triple decker in Boston oh. or in Cambridge. Did we? And we did near Inman. Is that what a triple decker? I haven't heard the term before, so I'm obviously going to be no help um, responding to this question. But Craig seems to know. So yeah, three units stacked up. Right? Three units. Yeah, the stacked same up? as a three okay. flat. Yeah. I, well, you uh, just said the same as a three flat, like so, <laughs> like so obviously when that is the core of the question. Yeah, exactly. You were just like, oh yeah, same as a three flat. That's what he's asking. Is it the same? Oh, I guess I think I was thinking more about. <laughs> okay, I was going to say the difference is that in Boston they seem to all be wood frame construction, and oh, here they are uh, brick yeah. construction. Oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah, okay. I um, guess that, sorry. I guess I made some assumptions about the the question. No, the, I think you answered the question <laughs> in making. <laughs> Good job, mission accomplished. <laughs> is is there another? Uh, Does it mean something else? Yeah. I don't know. Oh, I, asked oh, the, I, I, asked the, I asked the questions. <laughs> you asked the questions. Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, I had, yeah, two, two flat, three flat. Uh, does that just refer to unit quantity or is there some quality that makes a triple decker other than three yeah. units um, in one? Well, building? I have to imagine that there's all these these all these tropes about Chicago layouts because right. like, of the Chicago lot size yeah. and that those don't apply maybe to the triple decker and or they're, they're similar but different constraints. Yeah. So because I, I know like if, if you look at like the sort of like I don't, every other Chicago apartment looks basically the same and is, there's like four variations on the layout you know with like a few tweaks here and there yeah. um, which is kind of nice it's always nice it's weird to go into an apartment that's someone else's that you've never been in before and you kind of know where everything is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's something weirdly like civic about that oh, I yeah. don't know <laughs> 
Yeah, Craig and I were also saying like we've just gotten so used to um, working on long, skinny buildings. You know, like we're all our plans are long, narrow <laughs> rectangles. That yeah. Somebody recently like asked us to look at a plan that was a square. And I was just like <laughs> totally thrown off base. I was just like, I don't really know how to like evaluate this or like think about it. Like I just like I can only work on long, skinny buildings for the rest of my life. That's it. I don't no care. squares. Yeah, no squ- or like yeah, g- God forbid, any other shape. Like I just like I don't know how to evaluate it. Yeah, <laughs> I have no metrics. <laughs> yeah, if it's not yeah. on twenty five by yeah. one twenty five, it's not or, and also no to no topography please yeah <laughs> okay I, is this cheating i just referenced wikipedia on my phone please uh the triple decker according to wikipedia is uh is uh three units but it is typically light framed wood construction that's what you said yeah all right so you got it right Woo. Points for me. Mission accomplished. <laughs> now you know if you're on that Boston to Chicago this circuit. It's like becoming like around the horn. We should give you like little points. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, we have a mystery to solve. Are you guys up for this one? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, bathroom floor issue. Anytime. <laughs> This I, I have no clue. I, I read this question and I, I'm I'm at a loss here. Uh, anytime after I get in a shower, there are puddles that form near the tub. Usually, there is one small puddle and then a larger one. The puddles do not cover the bathroom floor entirely, but they appear an hour or so after I get out of the shower. Hmm. I put a shower guard on the tub because I thought maybe it was overflow, but that does not seem to have solved the problem. The puddles seem to be rising up from beneath the floor and through the flooring in the bathroom, and it is occurring more often lately. The floor is not tile. It is a fake-looking hardwood flooring. Any ideas of what the problem could be? My guess is that the water is not coming up through the floor because water doesn't run uphill. It is probably (laughs) falling off the ceiling. I would ask if they have a bathroom vent that is ventilating all of the moisture out of the room. If not, Ah. you'll get droplets that form on the ceiling and then are probably falling down to the floor, and depending on... Uh, how their ceiling is shaped, like they could be dropping in specific areas. Uh, I see. I was going to add that, you know, if they don't have the proper finish on their bathroom, if they're not using the proper materials such as a green board backer and you don't have a specific kind of paint that's made to um, handle moisture, you're, you're going to get that. In fact, if they're looking up when they're in the shower and they see kind of a discoloration and, and spots, mm-hmm. That's that's probably what's happening. It's probably coming down. And it's probably happening with more frequency because, as Craig mentioned, they don't have a, a vent system. And so water is actually being retained in the drywall, mm. which is a bad situation. That's mold. mold. And yes. so you want to what, – what they should do to solve this issue, frankly, is to um, probably rip out their ceiling, install <laughs> a bathroom vent, or at the very least uh, put a vent in their, their window if they don't have a glass block vented window. Yeah. I have a user error hypothesis. <laughs> you know, when Craig and I first started dating, one of the things that you're, you, I see you looking at me because you know where this is going. You know, like some people dry off within the context of the, you know, weatherproof environment. Only ridiculous people. And other people get out of the bathtub or shower and then are just pouring water all over the ground and then like dry themselves and then go about their day. Is it possible that this person is unaware <laughs> that they themselves are the carrier of the water and pouring it out all over the floor? And then they come back an hour later and they're like, oh, my God, there's these puddles on the floor. What could that be? And it's really just that they should dry off in the shower. That's yeah. my user error hypothesis. That I think, is, I think, is likely. I think that that's at, at least yeah. as likely as the, as the yeah. Or, or that had to be something that they would have considered. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know, you say that 
like you were leaving puddles all over the bathroom floor. <laughs> that is what the had... towel is for that you put on the floor before you get in the shower. I know, but that towel always gets so gross. Kiefer, That's I'm why you put it page. in the laundry machine. What the laundry machine? <laughs> like Craig will yes, like you put wash the, the bath rug towel floor covering. Oh my god. Yes. Yeah. You wash things regularly. <laughs> what? This is not this is not weird. I'm just saying, before you rip out the ceiling, consider is it a possibility that you or your newly moved in significant yeah. other, you know, has like a it, order of operations body drying um problem? Yes. It is possible. That's, that's, that's possible. Yeah. I think it's I think Wait, it's can we just take a vote? Do all three of you dry off in the shower? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's weird. Weirdos, weirdos. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I thought I'd have at least one person on my side. (laughs) The design of the moment. uh, (laughs) Uh, Moving on, next question. Uh, Can I 3D model my grandmother's old house if she passed away and it got sold? I want to create my grandmother's old house um, in a 3D modeling software for university project. I just wondered if there would be any legal issues. Oh, I don't think there are legal issues. Um, One of my students actually is working on this kind of amazing uh, thesis project where she's talking about kind of like reconstructing the homes of people who have passed away in AR, VR space. So you can kind of Uh visit it and it'll be like a kind of permanent memorial. So I think in addition to 3D modeling, um, they should consider kind of 3D scanning, which you can just basically do with your iPhone or an iPad, like pretty low tech so that like all the kind of beautiful traces of their grandmother or grandfather like still remain there, not not just the kind of shape of the building, but the objects and the contents and the kind of like details that you wouldn't get in a 3D model. I think that could be a good idea. Yeah. Unless, of course, the grandmother died some time ago and this gentleman's going to break into the house. Oh, yes. That's a legal <laughs> issue. <laughs> the 3D model, you should qualify. You should yes. not see me into yes. your grandmother's yeah. house. Well, and also if you have if you have lots of old photographs and you're trying to model the interior of the space and you don't have any access to it, mm-hmm. you can use a photo a, a technique called photogrammetry, and it's basically software that will process the kind of geometry out of the photos, yeah. which is pretty wild. And so if you have enough of enough photos, it takes quite a quite a substantial number of pictures, but um, you can kind of triangulate all of the geometry. Um, from from a camera, especially if you know you have to know. I think the focal length of the camera, though. I don't know, but there used to be a really great app that did that, but it was recently discontinued. One, two, three D catch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where are we? Like? Rest in peace. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I but I yeah. I think I think I don't know. Thinking about like AR and VR, like in relation to kind of capturing spaces like that, strikes me as very spooky. Mm. Yeah, I mean. I think I think it could be kind of ghostly. On the other hand, like I don't know the the students like working on this project like specifically and or, or like emerge from issues in Hong Kong. Like I think the kind of like c- constructing spaces for for the dead or like monuments of the scale that we're thinking of them is like not always possible. It's not always feasible. Like maybe maybe there's a way to think about kind of memory in in a way that is, um, yeah, more digital. Yeah, uh, I'm not against it. Yeah, no, it sounds very interesting. All right, next question. Oh, and this is a very interesting question. So I'll start by offering just the question, and then I'll, I'll I realize some things about it. Um, do you believe that a house can build itself? Um, do I believe that a house can build itself? I think my answer is no. I guess I should just say yes for debate's purposes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll play it out as as we go through. Hey, Kiefer and Jamie. 
think it depends on what kind of house it is. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I'm generally a Luddite. That's always what I say. Um, it's not strictly true, but now you see all of these houses where they have all this 3D printer stuff going on. I oh, think, I thought you were going to say like a house grown out of mycelium yeah, or something. But I think that too, right? I mean, I think uh, uh, houses build themselves all the time. <laughs> like like in, in that context, and like, you know, like the primitive huts and caves and things. Or like, of, But the primitive um, hut was still built by people. But okay, like a cave you, wasn't. And I mean, yeah. houses yeah. for like squirrels and woodpeckers yeah. clearly aren't. And you could make the case that those are But are those home. houses but or like, habitats? If you <laughs> if you like hairs. if you see the agency to the house and like okay, like so you have a house that has had many people in it who has who have lived in over time. Yeah. Everybody who's lived in it has changes, like transformed, right? Whatever, like in the way regular houses do. But like that house has like no owner. It is like an object with like a life of its own and its own like presence in yeah. the world. And like therefore like its its frameworks yeah. and conditions have like produced changes and, and constructions which construct yeah. itself over time. And right? really with the object-oriented ontology. I don't right. say that. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. Sort of. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, but, but, I, but I think I'm just mumbling around that. No, I, I actually, I think that object-oriented ontology yeah. is just like a drummed up, v- overdid version of like historical materialism. But that's just me. Anyway, the thing that I found, uh, so, so I'm, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying, <laughs> but I think uh, as a historical materialist, yeah. but, I, but I also, I, I found as interesting thing about this question apparently this is like a common evangelical christian trope where it's like it's like do you believe that a house can build itself and like uh i guess the the, like a house of worship and no but the answer is supposed to be like no of course that would be ridiculous and then and then the follow-up is well then how do you believe that creation um was built without a creator and it's oh you tricked us with this question but i'm like but i'm like that's ridiculous (laughs) like that's like that seemed just like semantic maneuvering to me um but i was like wow like i found this question i found it over and over and over and over again and mm. I was like why am I seeing this this seems like a building designer <laughs> question mm. and then I realized that it had this uh, whole thing behind it so you guys are all on the side of creationism actually is uh, what you didn't know uh, by responding apparently to so and only the or- yeah. object oriented ontologists are on the yes. side of um, evolution we've been had with this semantic shift <laughs> and uh, <laughs> na- now I'm a true believer <laughs> yeah, yeah. have you come around I should point out this very specific kind of evangelical question yeah it's a very American, like Taylor Road, Jerry Falwell, evangelical question, mm. which is a strain of evangelicism that is um, deliberately incurious yeah. and uh, very kind of anti-education beyond the Bible. And it's interesting you bring that up because our guest tomorrow on I-94 is Francis Fitzgerald, who just wrote the mm. big book, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning book on the evangelicals. Mm. So we've all been reading this. And, and I was wondering, actually, if that was where this question was going when you mm. asked it at the start. I see, yeah. Because it is a typical like house of worship question. Um that would be very familiar to my wife. Because, yeah. of course, she is a preacher's daughter and grew up in a very strict evangelical Catholic, uh, excuse mm. me, Calvinist household. But, you know, the question is usually the way that the, the, the things that people that listen to the show who may not be in the evangelical movement miss is that that question is predicated on there being only one answer. And the, the thing that's strange about it is it's not a question that is designed to educate. It is a question that's designed to be answered. And there's a difference. Oh, that if is If you know the yeah. answer to the question, that's all you need to know. It's not to personally enrich. It's not to educate you. It's not hmm. to broaden your realm of knowledge. It's to have the correct answer to a question, which is a, a totally different thing. Yeah. 
Definitely. Wait, you're saying like the question is set up so that so that it can then the rug can be pulled out from under no, you. No, the question is the question is set up so that there's only one answer, and as long as you've been taught the answer, you can answer it. Yeah. Wait, and the answer any, is no. The answer is no. Oh, okay. And anyone who is in the evangelical movement will tell you that answer. Yeah. And they don't even think about it. They, mm. That's what they've been taught is the answer. Mm. So there's a difference between all of us debating what is this answer mm. and coming up with their very different viewpoints. That's not what the question is designed to do. The question mm. is just designed to be answered. Yeah. Mm. And if you have the correct answer, then you are part of the evangelical community and you're You've learned your Bible. It's like a mm-hmm. shibboleth, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's a that's a very interesting strain of like fifties, forties, fifties to the present day evangelicism, which again doesn't put a premium on debate and would not entertain other answers because the other answers don't matter. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's again, it's yeah. not about educating; it's about having the right yeah. answer. Mm. So, I mean, you know, can a house build itself? <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. it's down the road, we may have, you know, 3D printers and robot houses and Futurama and Mr. Smithers, you know, building houses for yeah, us yeah. or whatever, robot Smithers. But um, it, that that doesn't matter. The questions, the questions, the question actually doesn't have any meaning. Yeah. What has meaning is that the flock of people have been taught this is the answer if you yeah. ever ask that question. Yeah. But, and there's something interesting about like, I, like actually, actually trying to answer it in earnest, right? Like, uh, I don't know, because it, it is like, the, I think that that, that approach yeah. really opens it up, right? I guess yeah. I like actually really enjoyed this question and thinking about it, even though it <laughs> ends up it was like a trick question, right? And, um, <laughs> uh, because I don't know, I think, yeah, I think I, the value of object-oriented ontology or thing theory is it kind of asks us to pivot the kind of like sense of who we think in the world has agency, right? And yeah. and like it can seem facetious. Like I, I mean, I think on, on certain levels it can seem facetious to like say like a, a house is like a an actant, right, or or an actor. But um, on the other hand, like if it kind of challenges. If it challenges our sense that like everything must have a god or an architect, like right. th- then that is profound, right? Yeah. Like then it, it it asks us to kind of think about how we think about authorship in a different way, and and the possibility of things to like take on take on their own agency. Like what what other things do we do we assume have no agency off the bat? That the, the answer is always no. That that we can kind of rethink. I don't know. So I like I guess I cede it to that evangelicals in in a way that that question is is like troubling to me and like and worth worth. We're thinking, though I realize that's kind of opposite, Jamie, of what you said about how the ideology works. Like, nonetheless, it seems like a kind of like interesting question. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, oh, station ID time. WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. Um, that's what you're listening to, folks. And we're here with the mailbag. Yeah, I think I think it's I think it is really fascinating. I I was I was debating whether or not to ask it, and I didn't want it to come across as a trick. But I I, I think that <laughs> there's something about. But but it's it also strikes me as kind of similar. What you're talking about, Jamie, is like one of my least favorite kind of pedagogical approaches that I hear often in architecture classes of like kind of like asking the students a question and like. Like, you know, fill in the blank style. And it's yeah. like, oh, you don't know this yet. You're learning it. That's why you're here. <laughs> like, let's, let's do – and we were talking about this the yeah. other day about, like, no, like, that's very different from a kind of, like, Socratic approach and, like, uh, a, a coming to understanding uh, – to an understanding as, as a kind of group. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it seems like it forecloses on on the ability of like students or or people mm. to surprise you, right? Like if if you're if you're setting up a question as a gotcha, right? Like yeah. like how well how does this really happen in the field? And the students say it wrong. You're like, no, actually, it's not, right? Like that that forecloses on the the sense that they may think about things in like a profoundly different way, and maybe the way that we thought about things is yeah, I don't know, or, or wrong. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. 
that's just straight thought. Craig doesn't want to chime in with his. Um, yeah, I don't know. And I just feel dirty now that I had the evangelical answer. <laughs> <laughs> you were well trained. <laughs> No, it's 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 okay to believe. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I want to believe. Uh, not not really, not in that way. Uh, <laughs> like I like the X Files. Um, under my kitchen sink, it has been smelling. I took out the J traps and cleaned them. Put vinegar and baking soda down the drain. Bleached the cabinets, everything, and the smell is still there. It's not a dead animal smell. Help! What is this smell? Trap needs to be cleaned out. They said they cleaned the trap. They oh, said, sorry. Well, they, they I zoned out after the, yeah. the middle they, of that a little bit. Have they put uh, like enzymes or anything down the – there's mm. organic enzymes you can get yeah. to clean drains that mm. if you've got a deeper clog beyond the trap, mm. you um, you basically leave them overnight. I, I'm not going to say the company that makes them. There's several. But there's a non-toxic organic enzymes that actually go in and will eat uh, grease mm. hair cool. and food. But anything that's past the trap, you shouldn't be able to smell if your trap is filled with water. Yeah. Correct. And the, it could also be that the plumbing stack is clogged, so it's not venting, so it's trapping some mm. extra potent sore gases in there. Um, well, they could not have it properly vented, which I think is what Craig's... Yeah. Mm. Well, I'm wondering, do they use that sink often? If you don't use a sink often, the water can all evaporate out of the trap and then sewer gas is yeah. coming up. Well, it's also quite possible that um, in their attempts to clean it, because it also appears that they disassembled the thing, <laughs> <laughs> um, that they emptied out the trap themselves. <laughs> it's, well, but it'll refill, though. It will, uh, yeah. It's right. The, the brilliance of the design. <laughs> unless it's a sink that you don't use very often. Yeah. Like, that happens a lot with floor drains. Oh. Because, like, if they are there for emergency use yeah. only, the water all evaporates out of them, and you have to put a primer <clears> on it. Right. The other thing it could be is if they're <laughs> if they they should see if it's properly vented. That that would be the number one thing I would do. But the number two thing is if it's a sink that was just kind of placed on like a cabinet or whatever, and mm -hmm. whatever the substrate is, if it's not a um, if it's a permeable surface, there could have been a leak, and the water soaked into that substrate, and it's actually the substrate under your sink that smells. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that's what I was thinking too. You know, maybe you had mice in there or something, and you know, yeah. I don't, I don't know if this is a common <clears throat> Chicago apartment, but you know, mice can get in there and be mice and leave urine and other things in there, and that would, that would do it. Yeah. Sounds like they should tear down their house, call an architect, and get a new one designed. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> from uh, probably design of the moment. Yeah. <laughs> I know someone. <laughs> Well, we have to leave it there with the mailbag. Um, and coming up n next, after the mailbag, um, there's a segment uh, with me, actually, talking <laughs> social. Yeah, I know. It's going to be a really trippy thing. Um, a pre-recorded interview. Uh, Chicago DSA um, records a, a fantastic podcast called Talking Socialism, um, produced by Andre Kilo. It's it's a it's a really wonderful podcast, really terrific show. They do fantastic. They do awesome interviews, and I'm not just saying that because um, I did one, um, and that's that's what we're going to air next: uh, an interview about housing um, that I did with Talking Socialism. Um, but their housing issue, which Buildings on Air listeners will um, uh, enjoy a lot, uh, is about to be released in the next uh, week or so, maybe a little sooner. Um, and I wanted to air more segments from it, um, but we we definitely wanted to cover the architectural work strike uh, actions that are happening um, so without without further ado there might be some music uh, but then there, there will be some there'll be some music <laughs> and then some uh, music commenting on this yes and then and then uh, and then we'll get into uh, talking socialism in the interview that I did with Andre welcome back everybody to another episode of talking socialism I'm Andre Callo and today we're talking to Kiefer Dunn uh, today's episode is about 
housing in the city of Chicago. Uh, there are a lot of problems with housing. Uh, and Kiefer, um, maybe you can uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your relationship to the question of housing. Okay, so my name is Kiefer Dunn. Um, I'm an architect. I work in the city of Chicago. I have my own architecture practice. I'm also a member of the Southside branch of Chicago DSA. Um, and kind of in the course of my architecture studies and doing campus activism, um, I don't know, I, I started thinking quite a bit about the relationship of socialism um, to housing, and I got into architecture to kind of make a better world for people. And, um, you know, there's so much about this economic system that stands in the way. Um, I also ho host a, a radio show about architecture and politics on Lumpen Radio uh, called Buildings on Air, and we, we often talk about housing. We've had some really smart people uh, come on the show who've, who've been really terrific. Uh, Kate Wagner, um, Maya uh, uh, Duxamova, um, who writes for The Reader on public housing issues, um, and, and, and a bunch more. Um, so it's been nice to kind of I don't know, listen, listen to their thoughts and um, sort of try to carry them through in, in my own work as a socialist and an architect. So as an architect, uh, what sort of uh, intervention can you make into the question of uh, housing in, in the city of Chicago? Yeah, so I, I think... Not not much, honestly. So I'm I'm also the national organizer for a group of, you know, sort of radical architects called the Architecture Lobby, and this is one of the things that we talk about all the time, uh, because as architects we know how to make a building beautiful and livable and sort of enriching to the spirit, um, and but we only ever get hired by rich people, <laughs> right? Or um, um, it's it's just the kind of thing where uh, the structural forces that limit like limit what you're able to accomplish. So every architect gets into the profession. I think most architects certainly get into the profession to put something positive into the world. But you very quickly realize that um, um, that's that's impossible, right? Because the city uh, and its development is th is so shot through with real estate speculation and sort of developer logics that um, kind of uh, making buildings for people uh, is not some is, is it's it's a lower priority right it's it's the last thing that these developers think about so the thing that causes uh, architecture in the city to be the way it is is almost entirely the market not uh, the city or the state attempting to intervene through the creation of public buildings but uh, for the most part just where's the money totally totally a thousand percent and you know you see it with uh, with things like TIF districts right like the the idea behind TIF districts is I don't know. It's not necessarily bad, I Could guess. Could you uh, explain what that oh, is? Oh, sure, yeah. So a TIF district is a tax increment financing district. And so this is a, a mechanism that they use in, in this city and, and several other cities um, to basically fund uh, b building projects and infrastructure projects. Uh, so the, the way that it works is they will sort of cap, um, cap the... Uh, 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 the, t the tax income coming to the city um, in a given area 
Um, and then after that, uh, you know, presumably the tax base for the area goes up and they take the difference and they put it into a pot of money called the, the TIF fund. And then um, basically the, the alderman who controls the TIF fund in, in their ward um, or TIF funds that might be in their ward can kind of dole out the money almost as they see fit. I mean, there's, there's some regulations on it and the actual specifics of it are, of course, a little bit more complicated. Um, but, you know, the, the, the way that it gets manifest in the city of Chicago and as a blank check of kind of public funds to developers. So say, for example, um, that uh, in Wicker Park, they have some kind of a, a district like this or in, in uh, Bucktown or something. Mm-hmm. And Scott Wake's pack, for example, mm-hmm. would uh, be the alderman there. And, uh, you know, he gets this money from uh, the TIF fund. Mm-hmm. What would he spend it on? What could he potentially spend it on? Yeah, so they uh, um, they could spend it on things like, you know, repairing the lights and the viaducts, <laughs> right? Or resurfacing streets or redoing streetscapes. But um, and and you do see a lot of that. But when um, um, uh, but you also see, um, you know, uh, the city giving a million or two million dollars in TIF funds to a developer um, for you know developing a kind of garbage mixed use building in the neighborhood. And so usually there's wait. Some... So the city will pay a developer to put up a building? Yeah. Yeah, but isn't the I thought that the way that the market works is that the developer <laughs> pays money to build buildings. Yes, one would think that. Yeah, but uh, you know this is of course the way the the founding constituent uh, or the founding constituent idea of neoliberalism is that uh, you know the government exists to you know, serve the market, right, and make sure that the market is operating efficiently. Um, and as hypocri- uh, hypocritical as it is, uh, um, you know. That's that's the way the cookie crumbles. They they end up writing all these blank checks, and so uh, there's there's always there's always an excuse, right? And and I think this is one of the the, the areas in which architects can be complicit. Um, there's always some kind of overture to the public good that gets made. Um, you know, sometimes you'll see like a little public space, like a little a, a few benches in the front, or you know, uh, sometimes they'll they'll have like exhibition space right uh, uh, of some kind in these buildings that's like you know nothing more than a kind of glass vitrine with some chicago trinkets and uh, you know and that can be enough to sort of get get the money to the developer so there are architectural elements that are added to a design in order to satisfy some sort of political requirement but this is not, uh, you know, judged based on its ability to actually change the lives of the people in that community, but rather just no. on whether or not it satisfies somebody's desire to, uh, what, a- appear more progressive than they are in a political situation? Yeah, and I, and I think, um, you know, the, the, the aldermen like it, the politicians like it, because it's, it, it, it's a sign of progress, right? And it's, the building is a sign of progress, and so no matter how crappy the building is, the fact that something is going up means that there's some vitality in the ward, and they, they also are kind of able to tout jobs and job growth because there might be some storefronts or something in, in these buildings. So, like, you know, that, that's why they like it. But you know, the, the, the way that we build now, the way that developers build uh, um, they are so out for themselves 
and so uh, um, concerned with cost savings that the quality of the buildings is totally atrocious. And so, um, you know, they're fine when, when they're new, uh, but it's, it's really the phrase, they don't make them like they used to. So is this commercial buildings and industrial buildings and, and residential? residential buildings? Yeah. yeah, it's across the board. And, um, and, and, a, and a what lo- would be the reason for a developer to spend money on a building and then consciously right. do a bad job building it? So they they don't have to their their long term financial interest uh, in the buildings is non existent, right? So, so so they'll create a building and their goal is to sell it as soon as possible to sell it somebody as, else to sell it as soon as possible. Often, um, or, yeah, or you know they have they they run the numbers they they to get financing for the project they have to do a thing called a pro forma, which basically breaks down how they're going to make money on the project. And um, you know I've seen a lot of these in in the course of my work pro formas, and and they have the numbers down where they can sort of do do the calculus uh and it's literally calculus right where where you know this is how much money we need to make from rents and 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 different things this is how much money we're paying on construction and then there's this kind of sweet spot where you sell the building when it's still worth something um you know and they 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 have it all optimized but none none of it is about a kind of long-term investment in a place um um you know they have no stake in these communities um, they have no stake in, in these communities that you're talking about. Is are you describing any community? The process of gentrification. Yeah, and I think yeah, I, I, I think it's actually a more a more kind of general process. But so this is happening in all kinds of neighborhoods, not just ones where people are being pushed out by developers, but all sorts of neighborhoods. Totally, totally. And so, and I, and I think it it also is something that that ends up perpetuating the wealth gap in specific ways um, because. You know, by the time these these houses start to fall apart, right? And and this has been going on this kind of crappy construction for forty years, since the, since the '60s and the '70s, and and so like, wait, is there something specific that changed that encouraged that? Um, yes, yes, I I think I have my speculations on it. I think that part of it is sort of. Um, um, the 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 way that the economy changed to something that's more sort of developer focused and developer friendly. So uh, um, you know, I think there's work that needs to be done on on how regu- like regulations and building codes changed. Um, my suspicion is that they got weaker in particular ways, but actually stronger in other ways that favored um, building product like manufacturers. Um, but but more specifically, I think that it, it's the kind of shift from um, public con- so much so much construction being done I- I- in in the kind of public realm by the government in one way or another to this kind of idea of like we're going to do public private partnerships and um, um, kind of fully shifting the onus of of any kind of urban development onto um, the private sector. So this would explain, for example, uh, the decline of public housing. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what exactly happened when it comes to public housing after World War II? Um, yes, yeah, so this is dissertations could be written about this, right? <laughs> like, uh, um, and and they have. Um, you know, I think the the long and short of it is that um, um, you had a an, an ideological war going on, right, between uh, the kind of folks in in the suburbs who um, 
had benefited from government programs to uh, help them buy homes. To help them buy homes, right? And and uh, folks in the city who are also benefiting from these programs. Um, but you know, there's all kinds of uh, racism uh, uh, involved naturally. And so there were people with a certain amount of political and economic power who had an interest in preventing the building of public housing for racist reasons, for economic reasons, for a number of different reasons. Totally. And I, and, and I think that, um, yeah, totally. And, and the aesthetic aspect of it is interesting because it becomes a scapegoat for everything else, right? So the idea of like these kind of mo- drab modern uh, buildings, uh, they, they, they kind of are... are easy things to look at and say like uh for for people to point to from a distance and say like look at look at this concentrated poverty right and oh, like the cabrini green towers cabrini green exactly is, is a great example and so i think um um one of the aspects of the architecture that that sort of contributed indirectly to this is 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 the idea that um you know, they they were kind of temples to um, um, depravity in some way, right? Which which is of course ridiculous. And I and there's there's uh, been some really amazing um, uh, writing and research done over the last five or ten years that says that the and shows that the problem with um, public housing projects was essentially a lack of maintenance more than anything else, right? That um, you know, especially since you had uh, um, uh, a lot of uh, housing projects that had a, a high proportion of children living in them, um, you know, like children mess stuff up. Like that's what children do, right? And and so when, in a high rise building, you have a lot of common spaces. Yes, right. You have uh, stairwells and hallways and things like yeah, that exactly. that are not. Uh, maintained by individual residents but are instead maintained by the city right exactly and so you get to a situation where um if if uh, things in common spaces sort of uh, fall by the wayside which they do um and there's a pressure on the government to not sort of fund the maintenance continuing maintenance of these things then you do get a situation where the building is fa- is falling apart and uh you know light, like lights are out and, and and it becomes a miserable place to live um um which does ha- have a, an incredibly damaging psychological effect on, on the people who live in these buildings. So, like, I, I think... Um, these uh, high-rise towers are not built anymore. No, no. And and now you, you hear um, sort of architects and, and, and um, urbanists talk about... Uh, uh, sort of spreading it out, and there's a kind of a, a notion now that the progressive way to do public housing is not to sort of concentrate it in public housing projects, but um, instead to kind of, you know, build build smaller developments throughout the city and sort of uh, have neighborhoods with mixed income um, to integrate people into a community. Yeah, and I and I think that I think that that's a, f- a fine way to do it. Um, but I think that the- I uh, I believe that's the premise that's explored as a kind of experiment in the HBO series Show Me a Hero. Uh, I I have never seen the show. I, it's a mini series uh, created by David Simon on the subject of public housing, starring Oscar Isaac. Yeah, excellent. Oh, all right. I'll have to watch that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that I think that at the end of the at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Like the the actual the, the disposition of the housing is something that we have to think through. But but the problem that we have now is simply a lack of housing. Whatever whatever disposition in towers in you know spread out throughout the uh, neighborhoods throughout the city. 
it doesn't matter we just don't have enough because the the city of chicago embarked on something called the plan for transformation um maybe 20 years ago um 15 20 years ago where basically they um resolved to tear down all the um um, high-rise public housing and um spread it out through the neighborhoods and of but they but they've only replaced they've replaced less than half of those units so there's a housing shortage when it comes to affordable housing in the city of chicago absolutely yeah and i think we we do better as a city than a lot of other cities because we have a relatively sort of stable population um um you know there's 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 uh that's that's not strictly true, but compared to other places, it is. And so um, there's not a, a massive influx of uh, young, young people yeah, moving yeah, it's into not the San city. Francisco or right? New York or, or New Miami, York. right? Exactly. Right. Um, but you know, I, I think I think it is extremely telling that the population changes that we do have in the city. It's it's um, it's it's black people moving out of the city and young white people moving in, right? And and so I think that 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 tells you where the priorities of this city are. Um, now these are um, these changes that you're describing: uh, black people leaving, white people coming. These um, the white young uh, college educated professionals who are moving into the city mm-hmm. are, are not moving into the neighborhoods that are being vacated by the uh, black population. No, 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 no. Of course not. And it's I mean it's it's a it's a tale as old as Chicago, right? About um, you know uh, differential development on the on the north north side versus the south and west side, right? And so that that's a, a pattern that continues. And Rahm Emanuel is continuing it right so is it largely economic forces that are causing this uh change in the way that people are distributed across the city um i i don't that's like a that's a hard question to to sort of say but yeah i think i mean i think so i think that uh if you look at what's driving like like why we develop where we develop because I'm not, I'm not against development, right? Like, I think that we should be building buildings for people. <laughs> no question. We should be building things that more people can use and sort of live in and enjoy. And we should be building nice buildings. Um, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a question of for who. And um, um, right now, the answer to for who, it's, it's, not, it's not even the yuppie people who are moving into the north side. It's, it's for a whole different class of people, the real estate developers and speculators. Um, and, and they're the only folks who really stand to benefit from, from, from any of this. And, and this is partly because of um, city and state uh, policies that reward developers for engaging in exactly this kind of behavior. Absolutely. And, and for them, you know, the quality of the building does not enter into it. And they, they, they essentially speculate on land, land value more than anything else. And so what's land value driven by? Land value is driven by sort of... Um, I don't know, the adjacency to other nice things like uh, public amenities, public transit, um, grocery stores, good schools. So, you know, it it ends up uh, um, that version of speculation and thinking about land value ends up... uh, 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 attenuating and stretching out and, and exacerbating, um, um, you know, all these structural issues that we have in the city, right? Rich neighborhoods keep getting richer because their land values keep going up. And uh, the opposite is true in, in, in neighborhoods that are less fortunate. So uh, there are a lot of different forces that are uh, affecting the way that uh, cities are changing, 
right? Like, yeah. um, you know, there are a lot more people with college degrees than there used to be. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of jobs that these people are taking are very different from the kinds of jobs that their parents had. Right. And, you know, the for the large extent, these people are getting married later. They're having fewer children. Mm. They are, uh, to certain extents... Uh, uh, engaged in a kind of lifestyle that's very different from uh, the one that was more common in the past. Mm. And these people who are um, more likely to not own a car, right. for example, and which would make public transit more attractive. They're more likely to uh, want to take a job doing something in a, um, a high-rise downtown, which means they would need to be near public transit sure. that would take them to and from, right? Yeah. So there are all sorts of economic changes that occurred over the last few decades that have change the way cities work it's the 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 you know the reverse of white flight right i mean in the 60s there was this kind of moment where um um you know white white families were heading out to the suburbs in droves um and sort of uh which reduced the tax base of urban centers and sort of um perpetuated to a lot of the structural inequality and uh the wealth gap etc um, and now you are seeing the kind of uh, some people have called it the return to the cities. Uh, there's a, there's a bunch of different kind of monikers for it. This is one of the phenomena described by uh, the um, uh, urban studies guy uh, Richard Florida. Yes, yeah, exactly. And and Richard Florida's angle on it is is a very specific one. He has uh, policy suggestions. Yeah, and he also t- he his he he talks a lot about the creative class specifically as a kind of economic engine. Now, what is that? Uh, so that this is it's very similar to what you were just describing. It's it's basically. Um, well, you can imagine it in terms of sort of where we're sitting now in Logan Square, right? <laughs> right, and Logan Square, Chicago, where you know a, a, a decade ago, um, Wicker Park, same way, two decades ago, three decades ago, was a neighborhood full of artists, right? And and um, we've seen the artists kind of uh, uh, displaced some folks who were uh, living in the neighborhood before they came, and then slowly the the artists come in and replace them, the art students. And then, then it's uh, 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 more upwardly mobile young professionals who come in, and then it's uh, sort of more wealthy people. And so, like the the Richard Florida basically says that this is the process through gen- uh, uh, by which gentrification happens is through the creative class, young. I saw all types. of this happen in in person in Bushwick over right. the last uh, twenty exactly. years. Exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, but you know, I I don't. I'm a little bit skeptical of his ideas. Um, so, because because I, I there, there's clearly some truth to what he's describing, um, but for him it's it's a good thing, right? I mean, like his his sort of premise is some modicum of gentrification is a good thing um, because it's driving development towards areas, and the key is like making it sustainable for the people who live there already. Great, that's good. But like, I I, I think that um, we often think about the people who are the, the gentrifiers if you will as kind of as as the problem right then rather than them being kind of uh, a symptom a symptom right and and you know one one person's gentrifier is another person's gentrifier i don't know if you can say that but but you know if you if you look at uh like, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I think that when the cool coffee shop opens up in the neighborhood and the baristas who live down the street from the cool coffee shop who are making, you know, some something slightly above minimum wage, like, I, I have a hard time, like, thinking about them as gentrifiers, right? Like, I, I think that, like, the, these are also workers. And so I, I think... 
um, uh, and, and certainly they might come with a, a set of, of, of privileges that, that, are, that, that need to be thought through sure, and sort of confronted. Absolutely paying a lot more in rent than people who were living in the neighborhood before they got there. Absolutely. And, and so, like, the, there's, there's real tensions here. But, you know, at, at, the, at the end of the day, the, the, the folks who are driving the kind of prices up are, it's, it's the developers and the real estate speculators. Right, it's it's the people who are sitting in a bank office writing out construction loans and writing out mortgages, um, um, who who are making the determination about how much a place is worth, and it's 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 not the people who are moving into the neighborhood as individuals. And so, um, um, I, ha- I have a question yeah. about speculation. Yeah, sure. About uh, how speculation works and and uh, why it. Uh, it has these uh, negative effects mm. on environments. Yeah. Uh, so speculators purchase land, they purchase buildings, they, they'll purchase businesses, they'll purchase things with the idea that a particular place is going to increase in terms of value, in, in right. terms of the, what people are willing to pay for rents and things yeah. like that. And... Uh, you know, people, there's more speculation in certain parts of the city than in others, right? Yes. And why does that speculation, which causes property values to go up, which causes mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of other changes before there's been any positive change? Right. Right? Before incomes go up, yeah. before people spend more, the prices go up first. Right. So why doesn't that discourage people from... Like, why don't speculators lose their shirts? Uh, because they're they're smart, right? I mean, like these are not these are not sort of dumb people. But there's and there's a reason why, uh, uh, you know, you kind of have these epicenters of um, of gentrification and speculation. I, I mean, like Wicker Park is a great example, right? Like Six Corners is kind of the epicenter of 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 value, and it kind of radiates out from there. Um, but that's an interesting. Um Example, because uh, just in the past few years, a lot of businesses right there have gone out of business. Right, because and so and this is why because the way that the the, the actual mechanism for the speculation for valuing um, the land or building is, is is something that real estate agents call the comparables. Right, and so you, you the the idea is that you have to find sort of a similar building in a similar location, and look at how much value it, it has. Right, so um, uh, as more development kind of starts to hit an area, the, it's a, it puts an upward pressure on all of those comparables. So the second you're in the market, you're kind of looking around at what's similar, and everything that's similar is a little bit more expensive. And you think maybe you can make a little bit more money, so you do a little bit higher than what's what's similar as a developer. And so, like that kind of that kind of upward pressure just just pulls everything in a given area. A bull uh, market becomes its own engine. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And there's no downward pressure from, say, like some desire that these developers or speculators might have to get any of their money back. Well, no, because because the 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 idea is to get in and get out, right? The idea is to no one no one in the real estate market plays a kind of long game. 
um, um, at least like the on the ground developers don't. Um, the banks do, and that's one of the reasons why 2008 happened, right? Is because they they were kind of um, buying long term mortgages in in mass, and no one was paying attention to any of these things. So so I mean, so the speculators are in a position of a kind of moral hazard. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And I mean, and they they have lost their shirts in big ways, right? 2008 is is a good example of that. Um, were there any significant reforms that were put in place to prevent it from occurring again for oh, the exact same reasons? Of course not. Of course not. So all the same forces that came together to create the crisis in 2008 are still in play and are still uh, yeah. creating hyperinflation of uh, rents and property values. Totally. And, you know, it's, it's and, and I, I'm not a financial policy expert by any means, uh, but I can I can absolutely say that, you know, the the new buildings that are going up, especially like high rise condominium buildings in the West Loop, and etc. Like pretty the, much every stop on the Blue Line uh, yeah. has a giant skyscraper full of condos. Yeah, that like, you can see from the train platform. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know these buildings are all wildly successful, even if no one lives there. How does that happen? Because there's there's a all they have to do is sell the units, right? And so, you know, this is much more of a phenomena in um, in sort of New York um, and in San Francisco and in uh, other places, um, ve- like very cosmopolitan and global cities, um, but where uh, uh, real estate investors, um, li- like literally the wealthiest of the wealthy people, will sort of buy units in these buildings and sit on them and leave them empty as a as kind of solid investment. Now, this is something that I've heard about in other cities yeah. as well, yeah. that there is uh, an enormous amount of uh, vacant property yeah. in incredibly high-value buildings. Right. So why does the vacancy not drive down the price? Uh, because... I, that's a good question, and I and I honestly wish I don't knew the answer. I don't know honestly. I think that it, I, I've personally seen enormous neighborhoods, yeah, uh, places in like Greenpoint in Brooklyn, and uh, here in mm-hmm. uh, in Logan Square and in uh, Humboldt Park, where there's just an enormous amount of vacancy in newly built right. um, condo buildings, yeah, and the the rent that they're asking for in the listings is sometimes twice what you would pay for any of the surrounding uh, sure. rental units. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's because they know that they're making money on the increase of the land value, right? So the way that, the way that they think about these investments, um, uh, developers and property owners, right, is if, if, you, if you spend, um, I don't know, a million dollars on uh, a brownstone somewhere in the city of Chicago. Mm. Um, as long as the value of that brownstone is appreciating at greater the rate of your loan and inflation, then you are making money, even if no one is sitting in the building, right? And so that that's how they think about it. So if, if, if in, a, in a hot neighborhood, <laughs> right, like Logan Square, the, the value of the property is going up Five percent a year or something. Doesn't the value increase because people need a place to live? 
uh, no. <laughs> well, yeah, yes and no, right? I mean, it's it's kind of market voodoo because this and this is one of the the differences between how we as socialists think about these things and how uh, 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 these kind of property owners think about something. Because for them, there is a there is a gain, right? There is a gain in value, even if no one is sitting there because the property value is rising faster than their loan and all of these other things. So the house becomes a kind of fiat currency, exactly. But but we don't think about it like that, right? Like we we think about it like the value of a house is in someone being able to live there, right? So why doesn't the city do anything to prevent people from holding on to units and not like why not tax the building? It's a good question. I think it's a good policy that we should be advocating for. I, I mean, I and and there 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 is property taxes, right? But um, anytime the city tries to raise property taxes, there's there's a revolt, right? And so, sure, but you would imagine that a large portion of that comes from people who don't want to pay taxes on the house that they live in. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So, what? Why not just tax the empty units? It's a good, it's a good, it's a good policy proposal. I, I hope that's something that CDSA can work on because I think that it does, uh, it does solve the problem. Uh, you know the. And and they've they've started to do this. Um, I think they might they might have some proposals to do this, in, or at least some activist pressure um, for that in 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 London. I know um, this is something that people have been working on. In 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 addition to you know they have a they have a squatting culture in London that's kind of unbelievable. So they they oftentimes just take over the the <laughs> the vacant buildings and and you know turn them into housing for the homeless and sort of co-ops like this. Um, I think we we need something that's 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 more systemic uh, as a solution to the problem and that, that, that's kind of rooted in policy. But um, I think that those things show that another world and way of thinking about these um, vacant giant mansions is, is possible. My last question, uh, and yeah. thank you very much for coming in, yeah. is about aesthetics. Sure. Uh, a city is a, uh, a place where a lot of people live and interact with each other in the city of Chicago, we have millions of people interacting with yeah. each other, right? Millions of people who are responsible for owning tiny little pieces of the city, yeah, right? And then you have developers and you have the city itself and lots of different groups that are interacting with each other and making uh, choices that determine what the city looks like and what it feels like to live here. Yeah. What can be done? What should be done? What is the role of aesthetics in sit in urban planning yeah um i well i i don't i think you can i could talk for for a long time about this i you know i i think um from the very beginning right uh of of urban planning as a profession um aesthetics uh were used as a kind of tool of social control so this is something that my dissertation work uh, or not dissertation my thesis work graduate school thesis work was on um uh and it has a lot to do with chicago um so um we've all heard hopefully about the 1893 columbian uh, exposition in jackson park um, which you know the fairgrounds were huge. Um, they were it's literally Jackson Park, right? Were the fairgrounds um, designed by Frederick Law Olmsted, a landscape architect, who also designed Grant Park in the city and um, Central Park in New York, and uh, Burnham, um, who did the city plan of Chicago. Um, um, and so, like the, these are kind of heroic figures in in the city's history, um, but they they were working at a really interesting time where 
Um, it was shortly after the Haymarket massacre and slightly before the kind of Pullman strike. But um, you know, they're they're kind of putting on this grand show of of the Haymarket massacre scale. was eighty uh, seven. Yeah, yeah, and so in eighteen ninety three, they're they're planning this huge show and uh, to kind of show off Chicago. But all of these guys who are bankrolling it, Marshall Field, uh, Armor. Um, uh, all the robber barons of the age, right, uh, who were organized into something called the Commercial Club of Chicago. These are people who had made fortunes off of meat, off of uh, distribution on railroads, off yeah. of department stores. Precisely. And they're worried about being, like, murdered in the street. Like, really, like, they're, 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 they have a visceral fear. This is the dawn of the progressive era. They have a visceral fear of kind of social movements um, which were very direct, very powerful, very well organized, and um, you know, like n- not not afraid of of things like that. So um, they were in a position where they were trying to invent new methods of social control, and and it's not con- it's not a conspiratorial thing, right? But it's 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 a structural thing. They were kind of impelled to do it. They weren't sort of scheming to do it, and that's an important distinction. But the end result is that they spend tons of money bankrolling. Um, uh, uh, these early, early urban planners, Olmsted and Burnham. Uh, Olmsted goes on to establish the first professional school of city planning at Harvard 10 years or so after the Columbian Exposition, but their ideology was called City Beautiful. And so the idea was that you needed to kind of beautify the city to pacify the residents, but also to kind of create a, a, a uniquely American civic identity. So uh, think about Chicago in 1893. Um, um, you know, you had uh, very strong immigrant communities. They were oftentimes quite radical, right? Like you had like, I, I love it. There was like five different German socialist newspapers in the city of Chicago or something kind of absurd like that. But, but uh, uh, you know. The, a lot of Polish anarchists, a lot of Italian anarchists. Right. And so, so the kind of... Um, um, tight-knit nature of the communities is organized ethnically but but also like there was a a kind of political aspect to it where the political traditions of the home country were also kind of brought over and you know the political traditions of the home country when you're talking about 1893 it's it's socialism right so um, um, a lot of the city beautiful movement was about creating a kind of distinct civic identity and pride in the city of Chicago but also like as an American and it was about kind of creating and they say this very very explicitly about creating a, a kind of ideal citizen using the aesthetic of the city um, um, and so in the layout of the city so um, the and uh, so I think that's one kind of parable that talks about kind of the relationship of aesthetics to political economy. Um, you know, you can look at kind of Olmsted and Burnham, and they're 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 all about sort of trees and greenery, and um, you know, parks being kind of lungs, um, and and the reason why it was kind of bankrolled, it kind of. C- comes presented as an aesthetic vision, but um, it gets funded because um, they needed a healthy and happy and obedient workforce. So the ideology there is these are 
angry people, violent people, criminals, anarchists, right. who don't feel American, they don't behave American, right. they don't look American, right. they don't live the way Americans live. So we're going to change all that by creating something brand new, something gorgeous that they'll yes. fall in love with. Right. And then they'll imagine that they have a personal in, a vested interest yeah. in and serve... Uh, to protect right. through becoming good citizens, good Americans. Absolutely. And and it's also the same shift. Um, the Columbian Exposition is a kind of test tube city for the kind of cities that we have now. And um, it's so it's, it's a good, um, uh, uh, I don't know, flashpoint for um, the city to change from a, a, a giant factory, right, to a giant shopping mall, <laughs> and so uh, um, um, which which if you think about uh, the city as a giant factory, uh, the, and and the way in which that would kind of uh, uh, really spark social movements by putting kind of masses of workers together in the same place and 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 oppressing them very directly and concretely um, um, to a kind of city where most of the people are kind of become com complicit in their own exploitation in particular ways, right? Like where it... it so it's the creation of a spectacle that would trick people into being their own oppressors. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And the, at the time, there was no mass media. Right. And, and, and it's also telling that the kind of invention of mass media happens in tandem with the urban developments. Uh, so, you know, the Kodak moment was invented at, at the Columbian Exposition, right? Like the like f the photograph as a kind of mass medium um, um, is very, very linked with the Columbian Exposition. It was kind of the first moment where you had these picture books that were sent out everywhere um, and, you know, printed in, in, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of copies and sent around. And so it was... It so this was, is a technological change in addition to a, a yeah. massive economic change and then a huge uh, political effort to create a, uh, a change in the way that people live their right. lives. Absolutely, absolutely. And so there's lots of moving pieces, right, which, which I, I think, again, sort of shows that, that, it, that it's, it's something structural and, and not kind of conspiratorial, although it almost reads like a conspiracy theory when you start doing the research. So what are the alternatives? I mean, yeah. plenty of, uh, you know, socialist, uh, communist, uh, governments uh, throughout the world right. have engaged in pretty big-scale urban yes. planning projects, you know, like right. the, the Moscow subway is the biggest subway in the world, Sure, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you see these giant cities of empty apartment buildings in uh, different, uh, like, ghost towns in Africa built by right. uh, Chinese uh, investors. Right. So um, what kind of alternative does exist as a... Uh, overarching principle for how aesthetics should be uh, considered in building a city. Yeah, um, I, you know it's 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 a it's a hard question because in some you know when, when I just went on this whole rant about city beautiful right and and its kind of relationship to capitalist ideology, but socialists I think are for beautiful cities right and for parks and public space and all of these other things. I mean, pretty much everybody is right. I mean the Nazis Absolutely. were into building beautiful cities right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I think you know what what is a, if there is a uniquely kind of socialist aesthetic? I, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, but but I I I think for me. It, it 
really stems out of a, like a, an, an ethic of the public good and public ownership where um, we have laws and, and a, social soci- a social system, an economic system that like en- enshrine the collective ownership of, of um, the places where we spend our time. And so I think um, there, there's, a, there's a book that I love uh, by Boris Adamov uh, uh, called Art and Production that uh, was written in 1926, um, and he talks a lot about the particular relationship of um, aesthetics and form-making to um, uh, the kind of Bolshevik revolution. Um, and so usually when we, when we talk about art and aesthetics and the relationship to politics, we talk about the Frankfurt School and sort of this idea that culture, capitalist culture, is hegemonic um, um, and... and you know, there, there's, there's, or the Society of the Spectacle by Guy Debord, which, which argues essentially the same thing. Um, I think that art and production um, is is an important thing. If 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 folks who are listening are curious, um, an important contribution to the discourse um, because it's 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 much less premised on the capitalist domination of everything because it's written in a moment and in a place where that's not strictly true. Um, and and so for for him, he he's arguing that. Con- that that aesthetics and art um, they structure everyday life. That's their their function in society is to kind of um, structure the everyday. And then he does this kind of amazing class analysis from the Middle Ages through uh, uh, present of the present of 1926 on how art was removed from the everyday and essentially made a kind of rarefied. Um, uh, 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 rarefied thing for the legitimation of an elite, right? Whether that elite was the kind of royalty or later on um, the bourgeois factory owner. So, or, or, and, and he basically argues that if you have art in a museum, it's basically dead. It's dead art. It, it, it might as well not exist. Just in a museum or in a cathedral? In a cathedral, any time that it's kind, of, it's kind of separate from the everyday life. And so, so I think that we will. N- it, it won't start with the aesthetic, um, the kind of socialist, the socialist city that we want to see and we want to live in. It won't begin with the aesthetic. I think um, certainly architects and urbanists can help open up an imaginary about what that kind of city would look like. Um, but I think it'll start with uh, it'll start with policy changes. Um, it'll start with building social movements. It'll start with. Um, um, kind of forcing um, the city and the powers that be um, to make concessions about some of these things. Um, it'll probably <laughs> ultimately end with a kind of general strike or something like this. But but I think we'll know when we've succeeded when kind of art and aesthetic uh, considerations begin to structure our every and become a part of our everyday life again. That's something mm-hmm. that shouldn't be a luxury. That's something that everyone should have access to. And I think it's it's a good canary in the coal mine but i, I guess i guess in the reverse um of of um you know whether we're doing the things that we want to do um with 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 the world as 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 kind of the working class so we know we've built the utopia when we start to worry about what to paint it yeah and and exactly and this is kind of uh, and and i think trotsky actually argues this that he he says that uh, uh following the kind of um disillusion of the state, uh, um, that politics will be replaced by uh, taste, and that we will have very intense and heated political discussions about taste. <laughs> well, I have those every day. <laughs> uh, Kiefer Dunn, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful uh, 
interview. Yeah, and, um, I hope to have you again uh, on the show. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Um, um, you have to come on Buildings on Air, and I'm looking forward to, uh, um, I don't know, having hopefully airing this on Buildings on Air. <laughs> that would be wonderful. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at B-L-D-G-S on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.